DEI budgets are under attack, but the goals haven't changed. Whether you're looking to increase your DEI knowledge, expand your market reach, or gain a competitive advantage in business, we have the solution. TDM Library is your single source for expert curated DEI resources, strategies, and solutions, all designed to help you transform your workplace culture and be a more effective contributor. For $9.99 per month, you get access to our searchable subscription-based digital library. There, you'll find articles, practical how-to guidebooks, podcasts, award-winning micro-videos, and more than 700 Q&As designed to help DEI practitioners, thought leaders, and executives create a more inclusive workplace. Whether you prefer to listen, watch, or read, we have the resources for you. TDM Library goes beyond the basics to dive deep into topics such as inclusive language, the business case for DEI, talent acquisition, and C-suite engagement. For less than the price of a sandwich, you get access to our library of more than a thousand pieces of original expert curated DEI content. Join today and get your first 30 days free. Get your library card now at tdmlibrary.thediversitymovement.com. You can't stop me, nothing's gonna stand in my way. Hey everyone, this episode is a replay of a special live edition of the Donald Thompson Podcast. Don had a chance to talk with Levitate's Jess Lipson, and we shared it on Facebook Live, Twitter, and YouTube. You can still see Don and Jess on all of those channels, and we'll put it in the show notes. On the show, Jess shares advice for entrepreneurs based on his experience in running ShareFile, which he bootstrapped and sold to Citrix for almost $100 million back in 2011. And then his experience as well, running his new company, Levitate. So, without further ado, here's your host, Donald Thompson. Yes, welcome aboard. Hey, thank you, Donald. Happy to be here. When you think about Jess's story, and if you don't don't know, you know you can you can Google it. There is a pretty significant exit. Uh, Jess created a company called ShareFile uh, that he exited to, to Citrix. Uh, a serial entrepreneur, very, very successful uh, as an entrepreneur here, here locally or really in the, in the Southeast, and has now started a new company called Levitate that is also doing really well and is in the process of, I think you guys, $12, $15 million in new funding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there's a lot of history of business success that we're going to dive into. But before we do that, Jess, tell us about you. Tell us about family, kids, where you're from. Let's just get to know each other a little bit, and then we'll kick it into some business stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you the the super short version, uh, starting from birth. Uh, I was <laughs> I was born in Iowa, in Iowa City, Iowa, and I lived there till I was eight years old. I moved to Baltimore area after that. So my mom was a a journalist, and so she wrote for a newspaper in Iowa, and she got a big job working for the Baltimore Sun as a journalist. And so uh, I moved there and lived there through high school. And then I came down to North Carolina for college. I went to Duke. And um, you know, when I went to college, I thought I wanted to be a philosophy professor. So I, you know, I, I majored in philosophy, got about, you know, three years maybe into that. And as I was getting close to my senior year, I realized I pretty much wasn't going to figure out 
why we're here and the meaning of life. And I'd learned everything I was going to learn in philosophy and um, realized I didn't want to be a professor. And so then started to figure out, well, with a philosophy degree, what am I going to do? So I thought about maybe I can go to law school. A lot of people who are philosophy majors go to law school, but that wasn't very interesting to me. I didn't really want to be a lawyer. And um, I kind of fell into startups. So I, I was a senior in college and the year 2000, I graduated in the year 2000. That was the dot-com bubble kind of days. And everybody was talking about startups, whether they were in philosophy majors or whatever your major was, like there was just a lot of buzz happening about startups and idea to IPO in 12 months and that kind of thing. And so I, I, I came up with a startup idea as a senior in college, worked on it. Didn't really work out, but I, I, kind of whetted my appetite a little bit on entrepreneurship and technology. And so then I went to work for a company. There's the, the CED locally council for entrepreneurial development. And I remember I was getting ready to graduate and hadn't really figured out what I was going to do for my job. Cause I was working on my own little startup idea. And when that failed, I just opened the CED directory, which was a, paper directory back then and just started calling companies in the CED directory to see if they had any jobs. And I got a job with a small startup and that's where I first kind of got into learning to code. The job was just a project manager. So I was just kind of doing random projects, but I started to, to pick up website design and development in my free time and do a little bit of freelance work and started my career about a year after I I started working there, I decided to leave and start my own company doing website design and the rest is history. That is awesome. So, you know, one of the things that's really interesting is like you followed an alternative path, but you didn't let any predetermined kind of way of doing things, right, uh, kind of restrict you. And, you know, I was on with a friend of mine, his name is uh, Hassan Pinto. One of his dreams was to get a job at the Lakers and he mm -hmm. wrote them letters back then. Mm -hmm. every month for a year and then just showed up at the office to try to get an interview. Mm -hmm. Right. You made me think of that when you opened up the CED directory mm -hmm. and started making calls mm -hmm. right, to see if there was a fit. And so what, what about just that innate desire to do something action focused versus over plan? Is that something you grew up with through parents? Is that something you did out of necessity? But that's a small but subtle difference in those of us that are entrepreneurs. Yeah, it was, it was kind of an interesting experience when I first joined that startup out of college because, first of all, part of the reason I did it is because I didn't have a lot of options because I was a philosophy major. <laughs> okay, I didn't. I didn't exactly have you know job job offers kind of falling into my lap. Um, but the other thing that was kind of tough about it is a lot of I was a good student in high school and um, good student in, in college at Duke. And um, I think it was a little bit depressing actually for me when I first graduated because most people go graduate college and they follow this path. They get go through the recruiting process. Maybe they go into consulting for McKinsey or something like that. And I think as a, as a person who's been a good student, you're used to just like being successful. If I just do well on the tests, I'll like kind of go down this path and I'll just be successful. I'll become a doctor. I'll become a lawyer. I'll become a consultant, I guess, just because of the way I went through life and 
choosing philosophy major more because I, you know, wanted to be a professor. I found myself at this point when I graduated, like for the first time, I don't have, I don't have this prescribed path and I'm like, I'm all alone trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And all of a sudden after being successful for a lot of, you know, my high school and college, I guess I was just this entry level job at a, you know, little startup, nothing glamorous at all. Just like doing whatever needed to be done. And it's kind of scary. Um, but it's also kind of liberating, I guess, to, um, be able to forge your own path and, and be creative. And I think for, as far as the entrepreneur question, I, as a kid, I, w- I was very entrepreneurial. My dad was a, he was a part-time professor and, uh, and a part-time entrepreneur. So he had like a little lifestyle business and I grew up around that. I would stuff envelopes for him and stuff for his business. He had a little market research business. And so I kind of got exposed to both. And I guess if you look at my life, uh, my dad was a half professor, half entrepreneur. I went to college thinking I was going to become a professor and then ended up becoming an entrepreneur. So I think it was somewhere buried in my DNA all, all along. And eventually, you know, it came out at the right time. And now I just feel like I was born to be an entrepreneur. I didn't know it in, until that time, but um, but I was probably destined to be. That's awesome. Uh, that, that is awesome. One of the things that, that I've been interested to ask you about, as you're looking at building an idea into a company, what are some of the things that you look at? Because a lot of times people are like, well, you need to sign an NDA because my idea is so amazing. And I'm like, well, mm-hmm. okay. Like <laughs> there's mm-hmm. this whole execution thing and building a business thing, right? Okay. Yeah. But as an entrepreneur, as a business leader, there's a lot of things that you can do. How do how did you and how do you link that to if you really think you've got something that you can create a business from, which is different than just having a, a cool idea? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I totally agree on the idea side. I I'm not a big person who feels like the idea having an idea is like the secret that you need to keep. I've got tons of business ideas. A lot of them I think are really good, but I'll never I'll never be able to get to them. And I actually love talking to other entrepreneurs and just shooting around ideas, um, being like, Hey, could this be a cool business? Cause it's, it's just kind of fun to think about, you know, businesses. Um, and in my early days, my super early days in college, when I first got into entrepreneurship, I was all about the idea, like you said, and protecting it. And, um, and, uh, over time, I think I realized that people aren't going to steal your idea because everybody's busy doing their doing their own thing and they're not going to drop everything. If I, you know, talk to you about a business idea I'm working on, you're not going to quit walk West and just drop everything and go run and try to take my idea. Like everyone's got their own, they're on a track, everyone's on their own track. And, you know, so it's, it's not a big, a big concern, but your, um, your other question was about like, how, how do you know an idea is, is a good one to pursue? Is that, Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Um, it's tough. It's, I think that's that's one of the really tough parts about entrepreneurship. And um, if there was an easy answer to it, I think a lot more people would be entrepreneurs. Yeah. But because uh, I, I think, you know, there's first of all, one of my beliefs is that probably the 
the entrepreneur and the team is more important than the idea. Mm. Um, and so the idea is kind of a launching point. And um, I think you need to be roughly in the vicinity of something that's a good idea when you start. If you're too far away, then you probably don't have enough. You're, you're, you may not iterate fast enough to get to something that works. But it's pretty rare that the initial idea is, ends up being exactly what the business that ends up working anyway. And so I think that, um, so I think ideas are important, but the more important thing is, is, you know, the entrepreneur themselves. And I would say most investors feel that way too. Most seed state investors are investing more in the entrepreneur than they are in the idea. So that, that's one piece. But for me, like if I think back to ShareFile, the kind of ideas I usually like to pursue are ones where I kind of talk to a handful of people about the idea and they say like, that's something I would buy, you yeah. know? And that was what happened with ShareFile. So I had a, I had three different product ideas at the time that I decided to focus on ShareFile. And um, one of them I was actually making some revenue from and I was licensing it to a, a, a large enterprise. Another one was some, intellectual property that I created around cryptography and then there was ShareFile and I talked to people who knew about startups, investors, friends, and almost, almost nobody advised me to do ShareFile. They were like, what's your differentiation? You're like, you don't even have a computer science degree. You're building this thing. Um, why can't Google do it? Why can't Microsoft do it? From all, all the business school kind of things would tell you, don't do this idea. But when I would go to like a cocktail party and talk to some businesses, this was 2005 and say, Hey, you know, I've got this tool that helps you transfer files that are either too large for email or too confidential for email. Like most of the businesses I talked to would be like, Oh, I need that. I, I, mm -hmm. I, my email attachments are too big or I've got to, you know, I've got to send stuff by DVD or courier for if I'm an accountant with tax returns. And so even though on paper, it was not the best idea, I knew I could get customers. And so that was what made me choose ShareFile. And that's always kind of what I use as the, you know, rather than looking at it academically, I'm, I'm much more likely to, to like, just if people are going to buy it and it seems like there's a need for it, then I'll just go do it. No, that's powerful. And you, you said you said a lot in that, that answer. But what's resonating with me is, can I get customers? Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. ultimately, that's the proof that an investor wants your team when you're hiring and building a team mm -hmm. for you to see progress as an entrepreneur is what is the customer willing to pay? And are you willing to buy from me more than once? Yep. Right. Yeah. And and those are those are really, really good nuggets. One of the other things that you described is more important than the idea is the entrepreneur and the team. Mm -hmm. So let's step a little bit away from from Jesse, from Jess, excuse me. And we know that you didn't do all of these amazing things by yourself. You selected and built teams. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things that you look for and people that you want to work with that can help take things to the next level? How do you make that assessment if somebody's a right fit for the culture and the and the and the commercial activity that you want to pursue? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. I'm I'm I don't consider myself great at hiring, um, but early on with ShareFile, I really 
went with my intuition uh, about people and more so I didn't do this really that intentionally initially, but in Sharefile, there was actually one guy I hired and it, this was early on. I met him. I really liked him a lot. It felt like we matched core values and he was smart, but I, I was looking for a head of technology, basically a VP of engineering. He was like, Hey, you know, I'm probably not the person for that. I, I, I can't really code and I don't, I, I'm good with databases, but here's another person I know who I'd recommend. And so I did hire the other person that he recommended, but then I also hired him, even though I had no job for him. And I, he was only my fourth employee. So it wasn't like I had a big organization. I basically hired this senior level guy with no idea what he would do. Just thinking, I really kind of connect with this person and we seem like we have the same values and he's really smart. And I hired him with the title VP of operations, but really just like didn't know what he was going to do. And so I think for me, um, hire, I, I think especially in the early days of an, of a startup, it's better to over hire, hire somebody who's got more capabilities than you think you need for the role. <clears throat> it always ends up being so much more complicated than, um, than you think it's going to be to do whatever you're doing in those early stages. So I ended up hiring, you know, more than what I needed and also hiring somebody not as much based on the timing of needing that role, but based on thinking like, this is somebody who I just really think is, is going to be great for the company. And he stayed longer at Sharefile than I did. I mean, I left Citrix in 2017. So he was, he was with me for, he was with Sharefile for uh, 2007 all the way to 2019. So for like 12 years awesome. and uh, he kind of grew with the company. That is awesome. And I think one of the things that you you mentioned, right, is that really smart, right, which means you can learn fast, but you had a good rapport. When you yeah. have a small organization, right, like you're the squad, mm -hmm. there's four or five or 10 people and you're going to spend, like your family, you're going to mm -hmm. spend like an inordinate amount of time chasing this journey together. So there needs to be some level of camaraderie that's more than just the numbers. Yeah. Right. That, that fits. And so that makes perfect, perfect sense. One of the things that when you think about a technology business or I, I think about a technology business, we can get inundated with the product market fit. And so all those different things. Ultimately, you've got to market products and you've got to sell them also. Mm -hmm. right? Tell me a little bit about how you went about building your sales force, how the people that went out into the market to really represent your brand and then how that balanced with a, a marketing mindset and, and how you think about those things for startups. <clears throat> yeah. I was kind of lucky with Sharefile in the early days. So I just, this was end of 2005, early 2006. And so Google AdWords was out there, but it was still pretty early and cost per click advertising was pretty cheap. And so my first few years of Sharefile, I was successful just, I found this ad channel, Google AdWords, started with $100, put it in Google AdWords. As I got customers, I would reinvest the revenue back into more Google AdWords. And, um, you know, within a few years, I was spending like $100,000 a month on Google and Google AdWords. And, you know, eventually I was spending two or $300,000 a month, just all on my credit card. And um, the return was just so great back then. Eventually, American Express called me like a couple of years in. 
because I had, I started, you know, with a small credit limit and I just kept like spending more and more. And I was putting like $200,000 a month on the Amex card. And they were like, Hey, would you mind sending us your financials? Cause <laughs> if, you, if you don't pay us at this point, you know, some, we're going to lose some serious money. And uh, so I think with ShareFile, every once in a while you get kind of a customer acquisition channel that comes around and if you can recognize it, like you mentioned, it's a, it's about the product, but the go-to market side of it is just as important as the product, maybe sometimes more important. I just happened to find this thing called Google AdWords back then. I mean, now Google AdWords is pretty expensive and the arbitrage opportunities in Google AdWords are not, not what they used to be. But I, I used to say back then when I launched ShareFile that I probably could have launched any product and made it successful on Google AdWords if it was project management or anything, because you could just go out there very cheaply advertise, get clicks to your website and drive conversions and the revenue it would take. I would be able to recover the cost of acquiring the customer within like a few months. And so it was just so easy. Over time, after a few years, we started to look at the idea that, you know, there's not an infinite amount of inventory out there on Google AdWords. Right. And the more you spend, the more expensive it is on the margin because you have to pay more per click. And so we started then to think about other channels like building a sales team. But it was probably, um, you know, three to four years in before we actually built a sales team and tried to start, you know, figuring out how to, to, to drive beyond Google AdWords. And as you fast forward to Levitate, which is your, your latest venture, how are you thinking about that now? Because obviously, right, the digital domain, and we play in this a little bit with Walk West, it's it's a science to it, right? You can't mm-hmm. just put money. It's not a it's not a um, it's not a digital slot machine, right? Right, yeah. right? like you, you got to have some science to it to make it really valuable. How are you thinking about that sales and marketing mix as you go into the market with Levitate and grow your next uh, next big thing? Yeah. So with ShareFile. A few years in, when I realized that our growth was eventually going to be kind of um, limited if we just did online advertising, we actually got into telesales and doing that with a vertical focus. So we focused on the first industry we focused on in ShareFile is, was accounting. So we said, hey, you know, looking out at the market, we're bootstrapped. But now we've got a bunch of these other competitors that are raising hundreds of millions of dollars and we need to find our niche in the long term. And so we said, why don't we focus on specific industries so that you got kind of your general horizontal solutions that will end up being Microsoft and Google, Dropbox and Box and those guys. And so um, let's focus on accounting and then we'll go to the next vertical, financial, legal and, and build out a sales and marketing kind of machine there. So we did that and we got to be really, really good at it. When I left ShareFile, we probably had a sales team of like 400 people. Mm. And um, we took this vertical specific approach, call into these accountants and do demos and then do uh, product integrations with other software providers, do marketing and everything that's really specific to accountants and look at the, the associations and everything that they're part of and the events. So we basically got to be just really, really good at this vertical playbook. And so when I started Levitate, one of the, I, I probably had 30 different business ideas when I, after I left Citrix and thinking about what I want to do next. 
and I put it through some different filters. And one of the filters was, what do I think I'm best in the world at? Or I could, I could possibly be one of the best in the world at. Mm. And it was that experience and share file of the vertical specific kind of sales that I really felt like I have a playbook. I could run the same playbook I ran at ShareFile because I know all the metrics. I know the people who used to work with me at ShareFile who could hire this kind of group and run it and do the exact same thing. And so that's what we ended up doing for Levitate is just basically running the ShareFile vertical playbook again. That is awesome. I mean, I'm just listening to you, the wisdom and the simplicity. When you have a vertical focus, you're dialing for dollars in a specific market. You're also learning very specifically everything about that niche. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And then over a hundred calls, a thousand calls, 2000 calls, you become a subject matter expertise about how to solve that problem with your tools. Yeah. Right. Because you have those conversations. Like I get it. Like I'm taking notes and like, yeah, I got to do that in, mm-hmm. in, in, in this, in this deal. When you think about that approach from a sales and marketing standpoint, bouncing it with growing a product, let's now switch to the funding, right? Because if you're going to build a sales team, that's harder to bootstrap, yeah, right? Like, it, you know, when you're going to build out an organization like that to do it quickly. Um, how did you make the determination with Levitate, bootstrap versus go out and seek funding? You obviously had some flexibility, obviously, at, at this point. How did you go through that, those mechanics to make that business decision? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, with ShareFile, we bootstrapped. And part of the reason was I don't think I would have been successful raising funding in uh, at that time just because I was had no real experience, not even a computer science background and not a lot of connections. And and uh, I could code. I learned I learned how to code. And so I felt like part of the reason we were bootstrapped is probably not by choice initially because I, I don't think I could have raised money. Um, so I was just like, yeah, instead of raising money, I'll just like sit down and, and code it myself and launch it on Google and get enough revenue so I can start hiring employees. Um, so it was kind of not by choice. Eventually, we, when we became successful, we had a lot of investors approaching us and wanting to throw money at us, begging to fund us. But at that point, we already had enough going on that we didn't really need the money. So um, for share or for uh, Levitate, I thought about the same thing again. And I mean, with ShareFile, I, in order to go the boot, the bootstrap route, I think is, it's a great way to build a business, but the cost of it, there, there's a huge commitment to being bootstrapped. So like at ShareFile, we had a thousand customers before I even hired my first employee. So I was, uh, you know, coding, Mm. the advertising doing customer support if the site went down i and i didn't and i wasn't there to bring it back up it was down and so i basically spent like a probably a year and a half carrying my laptop around everywhere i went you know (laughs) never taking a vacation because i i was the only person there for share file and i was just working you know super long hours and trying to get our revenue to the point where I could start hiring employees and, and still have enough money to reinvest. And I was, you know, I was in my mid, mid twenties, something like that, uh, mid, mid to late twenties. So I had the energy. So then this time around, I was like, all right, starting Levitate, I was turning 40 years old. 
And uh, I was like, do I have it in me to, uh, to bootstrap this? Cause to like code it myself and try to get it going and maybe hire one salesperson and wait until we get enough customers to hire the second salesperson. And, um, or should I just hire a couple of developers and uh, let them build it and we'll get out to market faster. And I think, you know, I just didn't have it in me anymore to, to bootstrap. And like, I have some resources now from selling ShareFile and I was like, you know, I'm just at 40, I don't think I can go like, and I don't think my wife would let me go, you know, bring the laptop and say, Hey, no vacations for, for two years. Cause I'm going to bootstrap this business. So that ended up being kind of the rationale. No, that's powerful and, 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 and appreciate it. Let me, change gears a little bit. So we've talked to business, we've talked startups in a little bit. Let's talk about the emotional strength of running your own company and being responsible for, for others, right? How, how did you grow into that? Is that something that you relish, you enjoy, right? Because you, you now are, people are betting on you leading them to the promised land, so to speak, and putting their careers in, in your hands. Talk to me about that thought process as a business leader right? Independently industry. How do you think about that? How'd you grow into that responsibility? Yeah, it was always, it was easier in ShareFile because with ShareFile, before I hired my first employee, I already had enough revenue that I pretty much knew when I hired somebody that their job was going to be pretty secure because we had a subscription business and I didn't, I didn't hire until we were cash flow positive enough to bring on somebody. And that's the nice thing about the subscription business is it's, it's stable, you know, as opposed to a project, you know, business. And so, and the other thing I did with ShareFile as a CEO, which is not very typical is I always kind of underhyped and undersold the opportunity. I remember most CEOs will kind of try to attract candidates and be like, we're going to be a billion dollar business and this is going to be great. And one of my early hires, I was like, yeah, ShareFile is never going to be more than like seven or eight people. You know, just we're we're going to be probably successful, but it's going to be a pretty small business. And and uh, then we always just grew way beyond, you know, what I had originally thought. And so I I kind of downplayed the I didn't I didn't hype the business and we were always hiring based on cash flow. And so I didn't really worry that much about it with ShareFile. And then the other thing with ShareFile is like I was a totally unproven entrepreneur. So nobody in the community had any expectations for me because um, no one knew, really knew who I was. And so it's kind of nice. The, the expectations were low and I, I didn't try to raise those expectations and just yeah. like be positive. I think uh, Levitate's a little different because, you know, people are like, oh, well, he's the guy who built ShareFile. Like, right. Levitate's going to be a failure unless it's at least as successful as ShareFile, if not like 10 times as successful. And so that is that is tough. I mean, it's Sing it's, me another hit hit record. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's the that's the the uh, the double edged sword of success that a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, when you're successful, doesn't doesn't mean things are easy. If you're like the hit record, like you mentioned, you're some successful artist. Well, then everyone's like, all right, is the next album good? Is it as good? Is it way better? And and if it's not, then everyone you know, criticizes you. And so I think it's kind of the same thing where Levitate, it's like, oh, wow. I, I second guess myself a lot after I launched it of like, 
why did I do this again? Could I, why didn't I sail off into the sunset and become a uh, investor or a board member? And I, I really putting myself out there again to like totally fail. And, and also the employees that join, a lot of them have worked for me before. And, uh, I know their expectations are high too. They're like, Oh yeah, Jess is doing something like, let me join on. Cause this is going to be big. And that weighed on me. I mean, it still weighs on me, but I, I think we're, we're, tr we're kind of getting to a size where I'm feeling a little bit better that we'll, we'll get to the promised land eventually. Gotcha. But, um, you know, the first year, two years, like it's tough. I mean, it was more stressful for, for me at Levitate than it was for ShareFile. Oh man, that's powerful because a lot of times, you know, we create this iconic brand of people that have been successful in business and it's well-deserved, right? What you did at Surefile was phenomenal. Uh, it's nice to hear and for our audience encouraging that, wait a minute, it doesn't give you a magic wand for the next one. No. Right? And and to to go through that and, and push again to, to get to that point where you can start to see that visibility is a, is a credit to you. But appreciate you sharing that, right? Like it's it's not easy to birth something new. Exactly. Like, no matter no matter who you are, right? Like exactly. There's a certain there's a certain magic at the beginning of like a the, that product market fit and and I think it's like it's not formulaic and just because you've done it before doesn't really doesn't make it any easier the second time. I what I told some people doing it a second time is it's about the same difficulty on the one hand i've got it's easier to hire talent and things like that because i've worked with people before yep. um, there are some things that i know now that i kind of benefit from but on the other hand that initial product market fit it's it's very specific to the time and place and everything of what's happening in in the world and in the software market and there's a lot of luck to it it's like you like i mentioned earlier if you get kind of close to the pin, you know, from a golf, if you can get kind of, if, if your initial idea, you drop it and it's close enough, maybe you can get there. But if you dropped it and it's too far away from that, where you need to be, you're just not going to be successful and probably doesn't matter who you are. And it's hard to know that until you, until you get into it. And the other thing that makes it harder the second time is the first time around, there's kind of an ignorance is bliss element where, mm -hmm. You know, ShareFile, I wasn't thinking about three years down the road and I was just kind of going along. And now I know what that problem is that's around the corner. And so I'm worrying about it. And so <laughs> hard, right. like, I, I, you know, I have that knowledge and now I'm worrying about it and I know the ways that the company can totally fail. And uh, so, yeah. No, that is, I, I appreciate the the openness and the, and the transparency because a lot of times people ask questions of me and, and different things from an entrepreneurship. The things that I've learned in multiple companies and, and having a couple exits is to your point, it's, it doesn't get easier, but you do have a higher degree of courage that you can rise to the occasion. Mm -hmm. That, that I do think is something that has helped me. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, one of the companies that, that we grew as a team was through the uh, financial recession. Oh, seven. Oh, oh, 2007, eight, nine, right? And we grew through that. So when the pandemic hit, this has not been easy. There's nothing good about what's going, like from a business standpoint, recession, pandemic, crazy election, right? Mm -hmm. Not great for business, right? Like all those three three things. 
the one thing that's allowed us to weather the storm is when I look at all these factors, I have the courage that we can push through it and get to the other side. Mm. And then that courage becomes contagious to your team. And then, mm-hmm. and then you keep swinging, you keep swinging. And so I, I will say that, that that experience like you, it doesn't make it easier, but it does create that visibility, that confidence mm-hmm. that, that you can push through what you're facing. And mm-hmm. that's really, really important. What advice, you know, and I know this is a broad question you probably get a lot, but like what are some of the, what are some of the guiding principles that you would share with somebody you were mentoring that's starting a company? Right. Some rules of thumb, some guiding things to help them see their own true north. Yeah. Good question. One thing I I would advise going back to the beginning of our conversation is get your first revenue as soon as you possibly can. Um, Even if it's not clean, I think I, I see a lot of entrepreneurs over engineering and over architecting their, um, their business idea. And I think sometimes a lot of great products come out of services first services businesses, because the key is finding somebody who's willing to pay you money, you know, for what you're doing. I think the people like to be polite and nice. And so if you come to me and say, Hey, you know, I've got this idea for this product and it does X, Y, and Z, what do you think? I'm probably going to just be like, yeah, you know, that sounds pretty interesting because I don't want to be rude to you and it doesn't cost me anything to tell, to tell you it sounds interesting, you know? And so um, even if you don't need, is even if your business plan is like some kind of free freemium thing or whatever, you don't need revenue for a while, I think it's really healthy to get it as a way to validate your idea, get your first customer as soon as possible. And um, also sometimes people can over architect and say, Hey, I've got this idea, but it's going to take me a year to build the product. And I always try to chop that down and like for levitate for ShareFile, I, it was like three months from when I put my hands on the keyboard for the first time to when we were out there selling it. And that's what I did with levitate as well. I said, Hey, you know, uh, a couple of developers started with us in mid December I said, like, let's get something we can use internally by December 31st, two weeks. Like, and then in another month, let's get a beta. And then three months after we start coding it, let's get something that we can put out there and sell. Yet, is it going to be the best? No, Um, but it's much better to get something out there that is people can react to and then either buy or not buy. And if they don't buy, get a better sense of like kind of what you need to do and then iterate, then kind of building and architecting in a vacuum. Mm. And then some people are like, well, but I also, it's just going to take a long time to build this product. And so then I'd say, well, maybe you can find somebody who has the problem and give them a really good deal on doing a custom thing for them, you know, kind of do it as a service to start, just get, get into the game, get into the mix, you know, like start, start seeing if somebody's willing to pay you money for something. So that, that, um, one big piece of advice. No, I think it's phenomenal advice because we can um, kind of wax a bowling ball as entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. right? And what what is the purpose of a bowling ball is to knock down pins. Mm-hmm. 
right? Like, so yeah. like all the time you're waxing the bowling ball, like you're not actually knocking down pins. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And um, so there's that balance between, you know, what it looks like and what it is. Mm-hmm. And when you, when you roll that pin or that product into the marketplace, you can find out what it is and, yeah. and what people say. So I think that's, I think that's really powerful advice. And the other piece that I would say is, you know, and obviously you're preaching to the choir. A lot of my businesses have been service businesses. And now I'm launching into some product businesses because obviously there's a scale difference. But the learning that you described from a service venture, right, is you can get to revenue pretty quick. And then you can get tight with your first couple of clients pretty quick mm-hmm. and, and have them be services, I think, are a great source of R&D. Exactly. Yeah. And prior to ShareFile, I had a website design and development business and that if I didn't do that, I probably would have never come up with the idea for ShareFile because I wouldn't have seen it in, you know, by dealing with clients. And I also wouldn't have learned the basics of business. So there's when it comes to products, there's that the product and then there's the basic blocking and tackling of being an entrepreneur. Like, can you can you manage people? Can you hire them? Can you have tough conversations? Can you do accounting? All that kind of stuff. And so I think the service business is a great way to get things going, get get some revenue going, get some conversations going, learn the basics of how to run a business. And then that's going to give you a, a great launching point. And so that's another thing I run into with people that are thinking about bootstrapping. It's like, well, how can I bootstrap? Because like, I'm not a programmer, so I can't code the product. So how am I supposed to go anywhere? And I think services are really powerful. If you think that there's a product, say, um, I'm staring out at my Airstream. If you think, hey, my product idea is um, like a an app for travel planning for RVs or something like that. Okay, you know, and I can't bootstrap that because I I can't code. I need a mobile app and all this kind of stuff. Like, okay, well, how about you go find some people who are RVers and and you just tell them uh, for a hundred bucks, I will go do a bunch of research and give you some travel plans and get going and see if that works. And then maybe start to build a little bit of a web app to send them the plans and then just keep keep going, like get in, get into the into the game and and be creative and figure out ways that you can start to like get that feedback from customers. No, that's awesome. And I think a common thread to your advice and it sounds like philosophy, right? Is, is get revenue fast, get clients quickly and listen to them. Yeah. Right. Like, like, yes, have a strong opinion on what, how, how you see the world, but get that counterbalanced with people in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm hearing that loud, loud and clear. And I think that's great advice. It doesn't, doesn't minimize right all the theoretical, but it allows you to have something to sanity check. Mm-hmm. All of our smart thinking and whiteboard sessions and strategy and all that all that stuff, uh, which is which is really great. Well, as we wind our time down together, and I'm really appreciative of of you lending your insight and and wisdom uh, to our folks. One of the things that you know, as we talk about a pandemic, as we look at our country, what are some of the things that you see right now we're talking about business but like our environment right that is linking social good and business success because a lot of employees today they don't want to just work for a company that's just making a bunch of money 
mm-hmm. right? They, they want they want a different blend. And, and I guess my question is, are you seeing that also in the people you hire, the clients you work with and talk to this triple bottom line, right? People playing at profit type thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, definitely from an employee perspective. I think, um, I don't know as much from our client's perspective, but um, definitely our employees, most of our employees are in their 20s. And um, I think that people of that generation, um, I think, you know, baby boomers, I'm not, I'm, I'm a millennial, you know, gen, gen X slash millennial kind of in the middle between the two, gen, between uh, baby boomers and the current generation. I think baby boomers were really of the mentality of like, work is work, you clock in, you clock out, your life is totally separate, and you just kind of don't worry about that kind of stuff at work. I think you know, the current generation wants to contribute to the community. And we heard that from, from our employees, just employee surveys and feedback and stuff is, uh, you know, figuring out a way to, to give back. And, and so, yes, I, I think it's, it's very, very important. One of the ways that we've looked at it with Levitate has been our mission as a company is to make the world a more creative and entrepreneurial place. And our, um, you know, our product is serving small businesses and trying to help them grow. Cause we feel like that's the you know, creative engine of the economy. And also small businesses are what power local communities, and things like that. And so we've tried to figure out ways that we can, we'll do one off, you know, things that are, but we try to always bring it back to, can we tie that into helping small businesses, which is kind of like, that's what we do in our core anyway. And then how can we, you know, do our community involvement to support that? And yes, we'll, we'll donate to the food bank and do things like that um, that are not quite small business, but a couple examples real quick are say with um, black lives matter and some of the things that have have been developing or at least kind of coming into focus, they've probably, they've always been happening, but coming into focus over, over the summer, is um, we decided to put that through the lens of Levitate and we had a milestone that we were celebrating as a company and we decided to um, bring in black owned businesses. We had a food truck that was black owned business at the event. We had gift cards from a bunch of local black owned businesses and every employee got to choose a $25 gift card to one of those three or four and um, supporting um, some other black entrepreneurs through another program beyond the black square um, program. And uh, so kind of trying to figure out how we can then just always tie in. And another thing through the pandemic has been, we have a monthly company meeting and we will pay for the employees lunch if they order from a a small business, you know, Uh, so they just take a picture. And so just kind of finding little ways to, to bring it together, but it makes, it makes, work more enjoyable and fun for everybody. I think when you're connected to, to the community and, and yeah, I totally agree with you that that's what employees want. They don't see there's a blurring between work and the rest of their life. That's, that's happening and trying to, trying to completely separate them. I don't, I don't think is the right approach. Yeah, no, thanks for that, that feedback. And, and what you're doing is, is phenomenal. I think we all, have to figure out different ways as the the lens is sharpening, right? With the social unrest and different things. How do we participate with what we have where we are? 
Mm-hmm. Right. And everybody's going to have a different walk in this moment, but we all can do something to move the ball forward and uh, and, and love the simple and powerful things that, that, that you've done. We all think more of people that we have proximity to. I have a friend of mine, John Samuel, who's blind and runs a great business entrepreneur. He's the CEO of a new company called Abler that focuses on digital accessibility um, for for people that are low vision and blind. But I have so much more appreciation, right, for his life experience because John and I are friends. Mm -hmm. It's not just something I'm reading about. It's something that now I want my friend to have an equitable digital experience. I want my friend and his family to have the same experiences that that I do. And what can I do about that? And so I think that as we get to know one another deeper, we will naturally get more aligned on some of the social items because you'll always fight for your friend. But if Mm -hmm. it's somebody in a state far away, something happened, that's easy to ignore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we all got life. We all got got stuff going going on. Final final question, my friend. And and again, thank you. What are some? You mentioned some tips for entrepreneurs. We talked about revenue, and we talked about uh, customers. Talk to me about something where you wish you could get a do over, like a big like like a big a, a big learning opportunity in 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 business, and what that learning opportunity taught you. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to say. I mean, I've definitely made a lot of mistakes. The one that always, and I can't say it, I definitely want it to be a do-over, but uh, the one that I always kind of haunts me or I, I think about is the process as an entrepreneur of deciding when to sell the company. And um, I often ask myself, did I make a mistake selling ShareFile when I did? You know, should I have kept going and running it even now? Um, and, you know, there's advantages and disadvantages, but... I think that's that's a big one. I don't know mm-hmm. if I would say I definitely want to do over, but uh, I think about whether I, I, you know, I, I think about whether I should I should have done it, shouldn't have done it, the good things that came from it, the bad things that came from it, and um, and so that's a big one. Um, it's a good one. Yeah, that's a that's a good one. Final final question. I want to give you space to share with our listeners about levitate. Right. You've been gracious and answered like all of all of our uh, questions and, and been a, a really big giver. I, I would love to hear the two to five minute, the three minute, like what is Levitate? Why does it matter in the business world? How does it help small businesses? Yeah, absolutely. I'll do that. And then uh, I'll do a quick plug for, for one other thing. But mm-hmm. um, so Levi- the inspiration for Levitate for me came from looking at my wife's business. My wife has a services business as well a consulting firm and i noticed that um even though she had salesforce and marketing automation tools and sales team and went to events and things like that that a lot of how she was getting her new business really just came from her doing a good job keeping in touch and staying top of mind with people in her network in a really personal and authentic way and um she was just kind of keeping that in her head and doing it in Evernote and like, Hey, I'm going to go to San Francisco. Let me try to get coffee with a bunch of these people and just keep up with these people. They weren't in the pipeline or anything like that, but oftentimes they would land at a new company and they would call her or they would um, refer her to somebody. And the largest deals that she closed and the ones that had the shortest sales cycle were those relationships that she cultivated over time. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I started talking to some other services businesses like 
financial advisors and, and law firms and insurance people. And it was kind of the same story over and over, which is we grow mostly through referral and word of mouth. It's really the soft sell kind of relationships. Like if I'm a, if I'm me, I don't really want a lawyer to come call me or email me and be like, Hey, do you need legal services? Um, it's probably not going to be the right time. And that just feels really transactional. But if the lawyer just kind of keeps in touch with me and is like, Hey, how's Brooks doing? And remembers that I like Duke basketball and builds that trust. Then eventually time is right. I leave Citrix. I start a new company and then I'm like, Hey, I'm going to call that, that person for legal stuff that I, I like. And um, so what I noticed is that a lot of the tools out there for staying top of mind are, are really kind of mass blast canned stuff like MailChimp, Constant Contact, which is fine. But for a relationship-based business, um, it doesn't really do the job of most of the time that will just go into a promotional box. No one will even read it. And if they do, they'll just delete it. If it comes into their inbox, they just delete it. And then even if they do read it, it's not going to deepen the relationship in the same way that, you know, Donald, if you shot me an email that was personal, it would. Yep. And so what we tried to um, build with Levitate is this new category that we're calling keep in touch marketing. And what that means is basically rather than the mass blast automated graphics heavy kind of stuff that we figure out a way to help scale the personal authentic outreach. So we tie into your real email and calendar and use software to help you do a better job staying in touch in a in an authentic way. So that's that's, awesome. that's what Levitate does. That is that is awesome. And thank you for that because I know that that I need that. So I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll I'll hit the website after this. And to your point with larger deals, shorter sales cycle. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so, if your tool helps me do that a couple times a year, mm-hmm. then I probably need some levitate. Yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> well, a lot of these businesses would say, "Hey, you know, like actually, the best business we get is the stuff that comes from referral and word of mouth and relationships. We get some stuff. Maybe if I'm a law firm, maybe I do some advertising. But a lot of what I get on the web is, you know, people sh- kind of shopping for bargains and." you know, and it's not quite as good as those other, those other referral word of mouth business, which is kind of the best business. So yeah, that's, um, that's what we do. We, for entrepreneurs listening, we have a free version, so you you can get the free personal account and then we've got, um, business versions as well. So, uh, but it's, it's been fun and it it ties into my passion, which is I, I do truly love entrepreneurs and small businesses and, and trying to help them a lot of, Small businesses just don't have the same access to technology and tools that the Fortune 500 does. So that's great. And then the one one little last thing I wanted to just yeah, plug is um, just encouraging everybody to go out there and vote. You know, it's uh, it's something actually in the company that we're pushing. We're doing a contest and trying to get at least 80% of the company to vote. And it's not a political thing. It's like we're not telling anyone who to vote for, but just get have your voice heard, especially, you know, the entrepreneurs and small businesses need to have their voice heard in, in the, um, you know, in, in their elected representatives. And, and so I would encourage everybody out there to, to please. I know in North Carolina, I think tomorrow is when early voting starts. And we're very fortunate in North Carolina because, first of all, 
we do a pretty good job on early voting. I think for the next two weeks, like 12 hours a day, pretty much seven days a week, there's early voting stuff out there. And um, we're probably in the, uh, this, this podcast probably goes beyond North Carolina, but I know there's, there are probably a lot of North Carolina people listening as well. You know, we arguably are the most important state this time. It's a swing state presidential yeah. Senate. There's, you know, state legislature with, uh, the new census and redistricting and everything that will happen. And so it's just, uh, and for those of us um, like me who remember back in 2000, that was a great reminder in the the Bush Gore election where you think your vote doesn't matter. And then literally it's coming down to like a few hundred votes and they're checking, you know, each individual yeah. ballot. And so anyway, um, I would just encourage everybody to this week, tomorrow, next day, day after that, this weekend, get out there and, Make sure you get your vote taken care of. Awesome. Jess, uh, thank you very much. I mean it sincerely. It was great to talk to you. If uh, if I can be a blessing of, of anything that I'm doing or into that I can be supportive, I sincerely want to return that that favor and that goodwill. And uh, and then we'll keep things going. So we're going to hit a little outro. Jess uh, Lipson of Levitate, thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you, Donald. This was a pleasure. I doubt, I fear, I question my drive. Thanks for tuning in to this replay of the Donald Thompson Podcast Live. To find Levitate, head on over to levitate.ai. We'll be doing more of these, so be sure to check out Donald Thompson on Facebook, LinkedIn, or any social media platform, and sign up for his newsletter as well at donaldthompson.com newsletter. This show is edited and produced by Earfluence, which you can find at earfluence.com. Music for this show is provided by Jensen Reed, who you can find at jensenreed.com. All right, everybody, stay safe, go vote, and we'll see you next time on the Donald Thompson Podcast.